Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today we have on Kyle Wagner, who is an author, a teacher, and a coach. Kyle is a former standout high school baseball player who went on to play Division I baseball at Wake Forest and a year professionally in the Angels organization. Kyle was also a part of the historic 2015 Redland Little League team that went on to win the United States Championship and compete in the Little League World Series. Kyle is the author of two books, Greenlight Hitting and How the River Cats Won, which details the Little League World Series run, but also Kyle is one of my favorite Twitter follows because he always helps me to think deeper on different subjects like practice design and player development. We dig deep in this episode and you're going to love it. Here is Kyle Wagner. Kyle, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here. I'm a big fan of the, the podcast and uh, I'm humbled that you invited me. Definitely. I, I don't, I, I feel weird calling you Kyle. I may just call you Wags. How, would that be better? <laughs> Whatever. There's, there's plenty of us to go around. I, I respond to Wags just fine. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I know that, well, I appreciate you saying that you listen to the show. I appreciate you saying that you like the show. That's always a, a humbling thing to hear. Uh, I know that there have, has been a couple of times that your book has been dropped as, as far as the resources go with with green light hitting and, and how the river cats won, which is really, really cool. But for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better about your baseball background and, and how you decided to get into coaching, do you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah, I think in many respects, it's a common story. Uh, I played, um, I played baseball at Wake Forest and, um, I played one year professionally in the angels organization. And, um, I, I, I had a really candid conversation with Tom Kochman, who I have a ton of respect for. He was my manager at the time, and I know he's still prominent in baseball circles. And, and he basically said, hey, Wags, we're never going to cut you, but we don't think you're ever going to be a big leaguer. Um, you know, so if you want to ride buses for a while, that, that's, that's certainly an option. But, uh, you know, if you want to get on with your life, uh, we, we wouldn't fault you for that. And I guess at that point, I decided that coaching was probably the avenue I wanted to pursue. Uh, I coached, um, I went back to Wake Forest. I coached Division Three school in Elizabethtown, uh, Pennsylvania. Those were great memories. But uh, really, the, uh, the staple of my coaching, the foundation, was at uh, Redland High School in Pennsylvania. And then ultimately, we started a training center, Go Wags. And that's where my brother and I uh, spent Eight, eight great years, but eight very challenging years too. I mean, they, a ton of success, but a, but a ton of hard work to get that thing up and rolling. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you wanted me to elaborate on Brett, I, my brother, I, I mentioned Brett and, um, he, he were identical twins and, um, who he, he, he was, uh, definitely the better baseball player. He was a first round draft pick from the Cardinals and, uh, you know, I, I get. I, I had many people tell me growing up, "Hey, if you hit, you'll play in the big leagues." And uh, Brett could hit. I mean, Brett was a left-handed pitcher, but he could swing it. He he played for Team USA, and he had great success at Wake Forest as a as an offensive player. And I guess in many respects, that's probably where my drive was born. Was that someone with my DNA could do something that I wanted to do, and and the quest was on. You know, how how could I? Uh, figure that out. How could I pass some of that insight on to the to the kids that I coach? So, Brett and I have a special relationship, but uh, you know, very very much of my coaching is rooted in the fact that you know I, I wish I could have been better. And and uh, every every day, literally every day, I saw someone that looked like me that was better. Oh, that's awesome! I love hearing that story. And so now, let's flash forward a couple of years. You are a teacher. And so I, I know firsthand of how big of an influence teaching had on my coaching career because I, to me, they're one and the same, right? And so can you dig into a little bit about uh, how does being a teacher help you with, you know, uh, being a baseball coach or being an instructor or anything like that? The biggest thing that uh, I've, I've been a teacher for 20 years. So the, in hindsight, the biggest thing that, that I have gained, the, the best perspective that I have gained is... Um, this phrase that I use, attendance doesn't imply consent. And what I mean by that is so often as coaches, these, these kids that we get to work with, we just assume that 
you know, they're, they're there by choice. And, uh, you know, all of our goals are the same and, and, uh, you know, we wear the same uniform and how, how could they not be the same, of course, winning. And, but as a teacher, you know, many, many kids that you come into contact with on a daily basis do not share your same goals. They do not share your priorities. They do not share your dreams and aspirations in any way. And yet you are asked to influence them and educate them and, and that's that's where the magic happens. That's really what can separate great teachers from from average teachers is how can I influence people that don't necessarily see my value yet and and, and aren't quite sure what I can give them. So that's that's probably uh, one of the biggest insights I've gained as a teacher. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. So I was a, I was a social studies teacher for uh, a long time and uh, teach my first intro to, I needed to get better at that exact aspect of what you're talking about, of, of making sure that attendance doesn't imply consent was teaching government to ninth graders and they can't vote yet. They have no interest in politics. And so trying to make it interesting while uh, getting them to show up every single day and and just truly trying to get them to love the class first and and just love being there and and enjoying it and then I, I think that that we can go from there which I'm sure we'll get into some of that stuff later but that was really my first like aha moment of okay it doesn't necessarily have to be the subject it can be the environment that we're putting them in that can help with the subject knowledge and and that was really one of my biggest uh, keys early on but let's talk about you you talk a lot about just how to how to help players take ownership. I know you posted a video last week that talked about three keys to drive. And so let let's get it dig into that a little bit about just individualized player development plans and I know that, that you're huge on this. So kind of if if you have some listeners that are wanting to take the first step towards that, how do we help our players to take ownership of their careers? Well, for one, I, I think we as coaches, uh, we, we need to do a better job of recognizing our audience. Uh, so many times I watch videos online or, or I, uh, you know, I, I see clinics or something along those lines. And I'm like, I love the message, but the, the audience, you, you might not be hitting your target. And at GoWags, one of the first things we did uh, to uh, to create this ownership, to create buy-in, to create this purpose, so to speak, was to recognize that um, you've got what we labeled sampling specialized and invested athletes. And your sampling athletes are is exactly as it sounds. They're sampling the sport. They haven't committed anything other than uh, uh, small amounts of time to practice that sport. Uh, and then we, the specialized group was those kids that were on the cusp of making it their life's journey and their, and their passion. And then the invested kids, those are the kids that, you know, they get at the big league level, they get at the college level. The invested kid is the kid that has in fact chosen the sport and made it his life's journey. So whenever, whenever I start talking about uh, Daniel Pink's research from drive and mastery, purpose, and autonomy, you first have to say, well, you know, who exactly is chasing it? Is it, is it a young person? Are they just sampling the sport and, or are they close to making a commitment or have they made a commitment? And then once you determine that, then you can start to go down that road of, you know, what is mastery? What is purpose and what is autonomy? So, um, you know, and I, I can keep going, but at, at when when you're when you're a sampling kid, when you're really young, your purpose is often wrapped up in your team. It, it's that's how you find your purpose is who are the kids around me on every day, and and that's why parents are desperate to try try to find good teams for their sons because they know that that's where their purpose lives. It's it's showing up on weekends and and playing with good players and and winning tournaments and. And that becomes their purpose. And then when you, when you become, when you move into that specialized area and that invested area, you, you know, you, you start to get some subtle cues from, from your parents, from coaches, Hey, you're really good. And, and, you know, you could be really good and, you know, maybe you ought to consider 
you know, maybe a new travel team, one that can, can develop your skills a little bit better. And, and, you know, and, and all of a sudden purpose takes a little, a little twist where now it becomes more individualized and, you know, and now it's important to showcase our skills because, you know, we start to, we start to think about college down the road and potentially even the major league baseball draft. And, and, um, you know, one of the things that, that I tried to do at Go Wags is we had, we had young kids all the way up to older kids and you, you really have to take stock into how that purpose changes for athletes as they grow, because that really can define team culture. If you're not aware of how someone's purpose is, is evolving as they grow. And I know that's deep, but I, I, I thought about it a lot and, and um, you know, to, to make, to, to, to make, a bunch of really good baseball players, not just 12 on your team or not just the one in your home. You really have to be locked in on, on uh, how many different goals and aspirations they have and, and what in fact is their purpose. So I hope I address that as, as well as you wanted. Sure. No, I love that. And so let, let's dig into the practical piece. So let's say that I'm an athletic director and I hired you to be our high school baseball coach to teach and coach where would you start with regards to that? Uh, we want to start there, but how do we? So, um, culture is so big and, um, what, what you're getting at is, is how can we, how can we create a team that, uh, certainly one will be proud of and one will be successful on the field. And you've, you've got to, you know, uh, you follow me and you know that one of my favorite phrases is intent precedes content, which means, kids want to show up and they want to play. And there are a lot of really good coaches that have a great message, but in order to get, in order to create excitement for a high school program, especially in today's specialized world where, uh, you know, your, your best basketball players might be just basketball players and your best football players might just be, be football players. You have to create an excitement to want to come out and, Without wins and losses, if you just hired me, without wins and losses as my resume, I've got to, I've got to convince every athlete that um, that I recognize their individual purpose, their individual goals, and I'll create an environment that I guarantee that they can grow in, uh, and and I'll also guarantee that we're going to have a blast doing it. I think, I think so often we get wrapped up in this, um, this growth mindset where every day has to be about, you know, gaining ground on, on the goal. And, uh, we lose sight that, that a lot of culture is driven by an energy and enthusiasm of wanting to be there. And again, I mentioned that attendance doesn't imply consent. Um, first and foremost, if I'm your high school coach, my, my priority is making the baseball program something people want to be a part of. And that absolutely has to precede the content. Well, that's a great, great point. And uh, again, I think that, that your, uh, that your ideas are, are absolutely cutting edge and, and perfect. I, maybe not necessarily cutting edge, but it's more of, okay, let's cut through all of the stuff that, uh, we deem maybe not as important and then let's start there. And, and that, that's one of the things that I really respect about you is, is you really, di- you, you mentioned it earlier, we're digging deep, but you dig deep to get to the core of what's actually important. And then you're a, once you get there, I think you're able to figure it, you know, figure out and you see these different trends, whether it be on social media or what other programs are doing. And you're going, you know what? I respect that, but that wouldn't work for us because X, Y, and Z. And just, uh, if, if I know that the coaches are going to ask, but what are some different practical things that we can do as coaches to make sure that the players are enjoying showing up on a daily basis? Well, you know, I, I, I get, I get a question quite a bit, like what, what is the one practical skill that a coach needs to, to, uh, to create this intent? And I, I always say it's, it's a beginner's mindset. It is 100% a beginner's mindset. And, the more you learn in this game, learning is fun. It's addictive, but, but the more you learn, the more you want to implement what you've learned and, and the trade-off to implementing what it is you've learned sometimes, 
uh, falls at the expense of, of your kids just enjoying the game. I mean, when, when you, the, the people that decide to play the game of baseball, they, they just, they decided to play the game for various reasons, but invariably there probably was someone that they saw that they really wanted to emulate and be like, uh, you know, Mike, Mike Trout or, or Aaron judge or someone in the little league world series. And, and that's what they want to do. They, they want to play a child's game and they want to play it as long as possible. And they want to be really, really good at it. And of course the game gets hard at the end. And of course there are a, a thousand different skills that they need to make it at the end. But when, when I talk about that beginner's mindset, you have to understand that making it at the end is a long way away. And, um, and, and many of these kids, they, they, they want to enjoy the game today. And then if here's, here's the magic, if they enjoy the game today, and if they have a blast playing the game, they will show up. It, it's, it's as if their skills compound because they're so excited to show up that they're thinking about it, even when they're not practicing. And, uh, that, that, that to me is the one thing, this beginner's mindset, this constantly keep reinvesting in, you know, how do, how do the kids see it? What do they want out of practice today? And, and, uh, again, you know, sampling specialized invested, the invested kids, they, they embrace boring more than the specialized and the sampling kids, you know? So there's a lot of invested kids, college age kids, uh, professional guys that, that love boring, they eat it up. All right. So that to them is fun. You have to, when I say fun, I'm not talking about water balloons and dodgeball. I'm talking about really good stuff that they know can help them grow, but it has to have an element of emotion in it. It's got to, it's got to attach to them so they can carry it with them. Definitely. And, you know, I, I have a friend of mine that I've been really you know, going back and forth with on some different ideas on, on how we can do that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. And, you know, we talk about individualized player plans a lot. And to me, that just sounds completely daunting. And after having these conversations, I don't, I don't think it necessarily is. I think it's a two-way street, obviously, or maybe not obviously for some, but I think it truly all starts with clarity and understanding about what what the player needs, like what the player actually needs to do to get better, uh, the how, what, when, how, and why. And uh, you talk about teaching the game. And I think that the more clear and the more, uh, the more understanding a person has of what is going on in a game, it's like chess. The more you understand, I don't know chess. I've never played chess. I think it, it may be interesting for me if I learned it, but people just, the more that they, that they learn about chess, the more that they really enjoy it. And I think that baseball can be the same way. It's, it's We have to take a step back and go, okay, we're probably going to have to teach the game and we're going to have to collaborate with with these players and to you know the what, when, how, and why of, of how we can get them better. And I think if we take care of those two steps, I think on your you know beginner's mind and learning journey, I, th- I think that that will help in those aspects. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think I – think- uh, one of the things that I tell folks at the younger ages is, and I, and I say this in my book, you got to throw the kitchen sink at them. We coaches, we, we must stop sorting the material. In other words, we, we chunk it and we give it to them in, in, in ways that we think they can interpret it. But when, when you give them everything, when you don't assume that it's over their head and uh, you know, I, I coached, uh, a lot of very successful young travel ball teams. And the last thing I wanted to be was, was the gatekeeper to their knowledge. Like I, I knew what I wanted them to know. And, and there were super intelligent baseball players and I would say something and I would think, well, wow, that was a lot. And then before you know it, they're executing it on Saturday afternoon and I'm just floored. And, and, you know, you would pose the question, you know, where, where did you get that? Well, you talked about it that one day. Yeah. Okay. So one day I talked about it and you went out and implemented that. And, um, that, that's what I mean. I, I think, you know, we, we just throw the kitchen sink at them. We just give them everything we've got and we let them sort it out. And, and I, and I, I, you know, I, I, I think probably if, if, if some of the parents to my team's 
were here, they probably would say, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they probably would say the biggest uh, differentiating aspect was, was our practices is that we, we gave them so much and, and we, we trusted their imagination and we trusted their, their willingness to learn and, and, uh, they grew because of it. So when, you know, when you talk about developing skills in a personalized individual plan, you know, a lot of that personalization, it forms on its own when you just, when you just give them everything, right? Don't sort it. Don't, don't, don't say, well, he's only seven and he's a shortstop and, and he's 10 and he's an outfielder. Like you, you teach to the whole and then you, and you let them, interpret things as they see fit and they will surprise you. They will start to, to grow in, in some crazy ways. And, and, um, I, I, I'm just afraid when I hear personalized plan, sometimes I'm always wondering, you know, who crafts that plan and, and are they, are they narrowing it more than they should? I, that's where I'll leave that. That's a great plan or that's a great idea and a great point. And like we were talking about off the mic earlier, we are no longer the sole proprietor of knowledge because, I mean, we have the history of the world in our pockets, right? And so uh, I think that that's also interesting. I mean, and it's something that it's great for us because we have more access to information, but it's also we need to realize we're not the only ones who have it anymore. And so I really like that. But you hit on practice design a little bit. Can you go into more detail about how you would, you know, again, I hired you uh, as the athletic director, so I want to hear what your practice plans would look like. So if you don't mind, go into it a little bit. So, um, you know, baseball is a great sport because it's an individual sport that masquerades as a team sport. Like, I mean, only one guy fields a ground ball, only one guy hits, uh, only one guy on the mound. So, uh, you know, your, your mistakes are amplified uh, many, many in many different ways. So there's this urge to develop all of these individual skills, and it's it's critical. Uh, and lots of people are are uh, making lots of money nationwide on that exact thing, teaching people how to throw harder and and hit better and and defend. And but but the game of baseball uh, at its core is is a team game, and it is a social experience. And I believe that a team practice consisting of an hour and a half or two hours has to embrace that social experience. Uh, I don't believe that when you get uh, boys or men together in a team uh, environment that, that the idea of individual training should exist. I, I believe that's for early work at the big league level. I believe that's for cage work and, uh, and what I would call master coaches at the younger level. But uh, I believe wholeheartedly, and, and I put some stuff out there, that that hour and a half or that two-hour time that you have is a social experience. And because it's a social experience, uh, that's, that's where the, uh, the coach really has to have an idea of how he wants to communicate his information. And, and um, I, I did. I put that video out there, and, and I put a lot of information in that video. But I'll, I'll just say this. I'll say that one of my beliefs is that planning is more important than the plan. So if, if I were talking to the athletic director, uh, I would say, I don't believe as a baseball coach that I'm not talking about a football coach, but as a baseball coach, I believe that uh, I go down with, with uh, a, uh, a scripted beginning and, and probably a scripted second piece. But then after that, I'm going to leave it open to, to where the flow of the practice dictates. I don't want to script what it is we're doing because if I script it, then, then I don't allow for that great question. I don't allow for that why from the kids. And uh, being very specific, uh, let's say I'm running a coach pitch scrimmage and uh, in the middle of the coach pitch scrimmage, our base running reads at second base are just terrible or, or, or we're not getting back and tagging efficiently at third base or our double play, we're rushing the double play. We're not, you know, I like to say one before two. Whatever it is in that situational scrimmage, immediately I can switch tracks and I can do what I call a micro teach. And, uh, and then we spend time on that micro teach. And then, and then uh, we, we finish up with hitting at the end. I want them excited about practice. And, you know, assuming you're not in a cold weather climate where 
it's like 35 degrees, you know, you try to save hitting for the end. So, you know, they, they have a great feel and, and a, and a, and a fun memory to come back to. And, and, uh, but, but that's how I would, I would run my practices is I would script the first two pieces. I would allow for some flexibility at the end, uh, trying to take advantage of the emotion of, of the, of the players. Really cool. Sounds like a lesson plan uh, from, from probably from one of your classes, which I, which I can dig. So let's, let's dig into, okay, Kyle, I, I really like this and this is great, but how do I balance the player development that you're talking about and winning? Uh, well, w- winning is so important and, and that might sound contradictory, but our our young people need to win. They they need to know what it feels like. They need to know uh, how how to approach it. They need coaches that value winning. And I think sometimes the the youth coaches, you know, the message is you got you have to develop. You have to develop, and and then they feel almost some sort of guilt or shame if they value winning. But um, young young people need to learn how to win too. And uh, I, I tell people it's an and both model. If if you win and you teach people how to win, you grow you 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 grow the competitor. And it's so difficult to grow the competitor in in a cage environment. Uh, you know, you you can work on skills and you can work on the swing and and you can throw harder. But you know, there's only one way to to become a better pitcher. It's you know, can I throw the two zero changeup? Can I overcome the shortstop's error? Can can I can I come in and throw three before four with with a crowd chanting and like competitors need to be grown as well as skills and and uh, and and the only way that you can grow competitors if you, is if you value winning you 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 can't you can't dismiss the act of winning and still say yeah 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 we we're, we're growing competitors well no you're not because you're okay with 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 a secondary result so the, uh, the th- those two things it's an and both model they have to coexist so you know we would constantly talk about you know expected behavior and and this is what's required and and uh when when we play games when when they put a scoreboard up or when we go on a weekend but but ultimately, when you know, I talk about the short game and the long game. The short game is driven by winning, which is which is ultra important. But the long game is is driven by development, right? I mean, you're you're not my my son is is a freshman at Georgia, and quite frankly, the coaches at Georgia don't really care how many games he won prior to showing up on campus. What they care about is how he can help them win now that he's on campus, right? So. Uh, but but what what they won't know, and but I'm sure what they'll appreciate is the fact that he won and he developed some some competitive skills that will help him win along the way. And I just don't know how you you develop those without playing to win at the youth level. But uh, now, having said that, um, you know I, I don't think that that's something that needs taught. I think most people play to win. I think what they need reminded of is, um, you know, we, we play to win, but we do it the right way. And, and, and if you've got 12 guys on your roster, then all 12 guys need to be accounted for and they need to be appreciated. Cause I think when, when people hear, yeah, 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 we play to win. They think in terms of winning, like a big league team wins where you've got starters and you've got bench guys. No, that's not when, when you're developing, sampling and specialized players if you can't win with your whole roster then you don't deserve to win and uh, I'm, I'm I, th- I think that's that was really a, a critical piece to the go wags model was you know not not only did we did we train them did we grow them did we practice them the right way but uh, we're on weekends I didn't I didn't really want to drive home feeling that player 12 didn't contribute to the trophy so that's another point I'll add there no, that's great. And so uh, for our listeners too, I, I know that you, you're a teacher, you are an author and you're a coach, but you, you've also had some decent uh, experiences in, let's say, you know, the, the little league world series, right. And you guys uh, did, did decent at that. So I, I would love to hear a little bit about how that all came together 
And truly, like if you could really, if you could dissect that season and you could go back in and say, guys, this is what we did and this is why it worked. It was a lot of different things that just came together perfectly with a lot of great kids. But here are the things that I would truly, truly take away from that. That was a magical season. And um, uh, I, I love talking about it. So I appreciate the question. Uh, my, my brother was the coach of that team. He was an assistant coach, Tom Piper. A childhood friend was the head coach, and uh, they they 100% embraced uh, green light hitting. And in in some respects, uh, Nomar Garcia Parra he sort of commented on it, and and it it was. I mean, what what our boys did w- was sort of extreme with how they went about their approach in the batter's box. But the the greatest thing that 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 model gave our boys was a fearless approach between the lines. Is uh, they they were trained and many of their friends were trained that came before them uh, that, you know, when you get in the batter's box, it's supposed to be a fun experience. And, you know, so often I think when we overcoach kids, when we get wrapped up in results too early, we create a, a, a fearful mindset where they don't want to disappoint dad or, or, you know, they, they're, they're careful and they're cautious. And, we just that that green light hitting was just the antithesis of that. It was it was turn and burn. It was let it rip. And we, we've uh, we've since moved away from from some of those ideas as the boys have become more invested. But um, in that particular group, uh, I, I, a ton of credit goes to those coaches that really realized that that little league baseball, uh, as much as I love it, as much as I enjoyed every single aspect of it. It's not baseball. I mean, you can't lead and, and uh, you know, the distances are so small. And so we called it, you know, it's arena ball. And uh, our coaches trained them for arena ball. If, if you would go to a practice, what you would see was you would see adult coaches, either myself or my brother or, or Aaron Walter, who was another good friend, and they would calibrate the radar at 70, 71, 72 miles an hour. And they would they would they would hone in their velocity, and the rest of the time they would just hit from distance off of 70, 71, 72. And we would often laugh because some parents would say, "Are you guys ever going to take ground balls?" We're like, "No, it's arena ball. If we hit, we'll win. If we pitch, we'll win." <laughs> and uh, and they did. They 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 just they bludgeoned people, and they were they were a fun team to watch. It didn't hurt that Cole matured very quickly. Uh, Cole, my nephew, was was just lights out, and uh, the, the whole team was. They're just just a pleasure to watch, and uh, they lost to Japan in the in the World Championship. But but what a year twenty fifteen was! That thank you for that question. <laughs> of course, no, I I I have I don't know if I followed you then, but it is really neat because I I don't watch a lot of the Little League World Series now, but I I remember watching that group, and I just remember them just taking daddy hacks and i i was going okay maybe you know the put it in play model is probably something that we could potentially get away from and you know that 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 was during my process of trying to decide who i wanted to be as a coach and and how i wanted to teach hitting or and to gain more understanding about it and so that was that was neat in my life too it's crazy that that was five years ago but let's 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 go ahead and, and dig into uh your book how the river cats won and uh, it is on Kindle Unlimited right now, which is pretty cool. Uh, it, it's on Amazon, and, and I'll make sure and link that in the show, sh- uh, the show notes. But you talked about how to authentically build relationships. And I think that, you know, it, it's set. I, I know you are like this too. Every Everything is always somewhere in the middle between usually what people say and then the other side says, and it's always somewhere in the middle. And people say they don't know how much you know until they know how much you care, which I think for the most part still rings true. You have to have some sort of a relationship with a player and them being able to see that you care for them and that you have some subject knowledge that you're trying to help them get better. But tell us a little bit about how to authentically build relationships. And then I would love for you to dig into the competition aspect of that to, of that as well. All right. I'm making a note there just so I don't forget. Um, so uh, I believe that um, – there's two kinds of relationships. One, one is a transactional and one is transformational. And the, unfortunately, the, the transactional relationship is that relationship that says, hey, uh, y- you, you owe me something, right? And, and 
I, I'm your boss and, and you have to perform a certain task for me. And if you do what I'm asking you to do, then life is good. And, and, you know, you, 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 you've touched on it here about, um, the, the old model, the, the hierarchy of sorts was, was a transactional relationship. I'm the coach, you're the player, you give me what I want and we move on. And, and I think the world, because it's just opened up and the information is, is out there. I think, the successful relationships, the successful coaches, the successful cultures and the teams are driven, driven by this transformational relationship, which is no one, no one owes anyone anything other than their best effort. And as long as both parties reciprocate, as long as my player works hard for me and I work hard for my player, uh, we, we build a ton of trust and uh, you're going to fail and I'm going to fail and that's okay be- because uh, we're going to, we're going to get up and we're going to do it all over again. And, and um, you know, I think, I think that is the critical component to authentic relationships. It is a relationship that doesn't have expectations. It is a relationship that says, I am just giving you my best. And, and yeah, yeah, we need results and yeah, we need outcomes. If we don't have that, then I, I might lose my job and I, you might be cut from my team, but we have to work under the idea that, that, that it's, it's going to be okay. And if we function like this, things will take care of themselves. And, um, you know, I just think it's that, that reciprocity of that relationship, that transactional relationship, it, it, it's what drives culture. And, and um, the reason why it's so difficult in a competitive venue is because we need we need wins, we need wins, and and, and we need we need hits to get wins, and and we need we need strikes instead of balls to 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 take the mound, and and it it takes a very um, a very broad perspective coach to realize that that those things do in fact come when you, when you focus on the process and you focus on, on a transformational relationship, you know, my, my brother loves truth and paradox. And that's really what it comes down to. The, the, the truth and the paradox is if you want the outcomes, if you want the results, you can't focus on the outcomes and the results. And, and, uh, that's, that's, that's a belief that I had. And, and, you know, I, I, I think, you know, uh, uh, a lot of respect for Butch Chaff, and I know he's been on your show, and he he put out a sarcastic tweet about a travel coach reaching out to a high school coach, and I was just floored. I was like, "Holy smokes, that that's amazing!" And he said, "No, nah, that never happens," and and it's a shame that it doesn't happen because, like that that's that is the 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 transformational relationships we need. We need relationships. Uh, that that are that are driven with with this giving this idea of I'll do my best I'll give you what I've got the best that I've got with 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 no expectations in return and uh, you know competition creates this this focus on the W mindset and then this result oriented approach sort of sabotages those transformational relationships. No, that's really, really good. So I, I want to rewind just a little bit. By the way, love Butch. He's he's awesome. I did not know that that was sarcastic because I was really excited to see that for him. I, I, thought, I didn't know either. And he said, no, it was sarcastic. And I was like, no, uh, no. I know. I know. I, I hope that we see that trend be more uh, moved to the forefront because <laughs> – I, and I've had this conversation with whenever I was a coach and then I, I've been, you know, helping uh, or I've been hanging out with some people who are just instructors over, you know, this quarantine time and having some conversations with them. And, and they asked, you know, what what do we have to do to improve that relationship? And and I I said, just reach out. I mean, it, it, it's both ways. It, it, it absolutely is. But at the end of the day, we're looking at the player who wants to get better, who's going to an instructor for a reason and who is wanting to win games with his high school coach and build great relationships. And so uh, at, in the end, the player benefits. But but I want to rewind a little bit. And you talked about to get, and, and uh, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit because I'm trying to remember exactly what you said. You said to get the results we want, we can't focus on the results that we get. Is that something similar? You said that your brother said it and it, it was just it blew me away but then i've since like had 17 thoughts but uh can you can you dig into that a little bit about what you mean because i love that 
Yeah. So in, in the book, I, I talk about the inside view and the outside view. And I, and I think it really defines how we see things. And coaches take an inside view of things. Like they know that you, you look, you can't focus on winning. You have to focus on all the things that lead to the winning. But on the outside view, like think of it from a fan's perspective. If, if the fans don't care how you get it done. They just want that you get it done. You know, so they don't care if you win seven to one or seven to six. As long as you get the W, we're walking away and things are fine and, you know, happy and the, and the fan base is content and the coach probably gets to keep his job. But um, what, what, what I'm talking about is, uh, is that. It's that it's that understanding that if we, if we focus on the, the little things, and, and the classic example I always use is when a kid swings and misses and the, the natural instinct for the coach is to yell something like, keep your eye on the ball. All right, so what you just did is you just bought into a result. You just, you just recognized that he swung and missed, and now you're going to coach the result. Whereas the, the swing itself might have been fine, but the, the pitch might have been a little bit out of the zone, or the pitch may have had some sink to it that you can't see. But, but it was a great swing, and, 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 and you made a great, great move on that ball, and, and I'd want you to do it again if the situation dictated. So where some people would say, keep your eye on the ball and, and, and dive into a result-oriented nature, I'm going to clap, clap and applaud and dive into a process-oriented nature. And if I do that enough, if I tie into the process, my results will be better than your results. Because what, what a result-oriented coach does is it, is it creates caution and it, and it places conditions on the relationship. It's, you know, and, and, and that's, that's what, when I said, you know, that, that truth and paradox, if you want the results, you can't focus on the results. That's, that's sort of what I meant by that. And, and all great coaches know it. All, all great coaches, they might not be able to say it, but they know it. They know that, you know, um, if, if another one of my favorites is, uh, a result-oriented approach. So if you throw a if you throw a two-o changeup to the three hitter, and that's your third best pitch, and he hits it out of the yard, and you come off the field, many coaches will say, "Hey, you can't get beat, get beat with your third best pitch there. You can't do that." All right. And then the next inning, he throws a two-o changeup, and he gets a swing and a miss, and then they'll say, "Hey, way to trust that changeup." And I'm like, "Wait a second, now he threw a two-o changeup, the one you said yes, the one you said no." You're literally just being a result-oriented coach, and and players players don't grow that way. They do not grow that way when coaches are result-oriented. You, and the great coaches are process-oriented. They they recognize it. They recognize what they want from their athlete, and and they're they're a little bit more uh, lenient with the with the outcome because they know it's a challenging game. No, that's that's so so good and i just man i i'm shaking my head thinking about instances that i've done that same thing you know and it's ah oh, man yeah i and, uh, and this summer i was watching it over and over again it's um a batter a batter took ball well the count was three one and he took what he thought was ball four and he flipped his bat to run to first base and the, the umpire called strike two the coach lit into him lit into him let the umpire call it. And I'm sitting over there thinking like, okay, yeah, that's, that's sound. I mean, I get it. I, I know what you're telling. Don't show the umpire up. Well, the very next batter, the very next batter, same exact thing. The umpire called a ball four and he went to first base, but nothing was said. Nothing was said. And that's, that's, that's a result oriented. I mean, and it takes incredible insight and you have to lock into exactly what you want to teach. But the, the low hanging fruit is always the results. And, uh, it, it takes a much broader perspective to coach on process. How much does fear, how much, how much does fear, uh, if, if we could take that out from players, how much would that benefit them? If, if, and that's the thing, right? I mean, every player knows that he needs to produce to get, to get between the lines. I mean, that's, you know, playing time isn't charity. It's not like coaches are just handing it out. Like you've got to earn it. So the, 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 uh, the obvious thing is results matter. It's the obvious thing, but the not so obvious thing is how do you get the results and, and how you get the results is this, this, uh, 
this, you know, play with your hair on fire. And, and it's funny, one of my daughter's uh, friends said her quote in her yearbook is going to be one of my quotes. And, and I said, which one's that? And she said, make bold decisions at full speed. And <laughs> I said, I said, okay, there you go. Make bold decisions at full speed. And, and that's, again, that's a, that's a process driven idea is that, look, the, the results are going to happen and it, it is a game of failure, but you, you have to make bold decisions and you, 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 you have to do them at full speed. And, and the minute that we create an ounce of doubt, all of a sudden our speed slows and a little bit of apprehension and then, and then the results really do suffer. So, you know, this, this coaching game, it's, 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 it's one of the hardest things that, that we're tasked to do. And, um, you know, I, I do talk about that. I, I forget what inning I talk about that in my book, but the inside view and the outside view. And when you start to see things in that, in that way, you go, oh, okay. So this is a really big deal for you because you have an inside view. And for me, I, I, you know, I, I don't, it's not that big a deal. I just care that we get there on time, you know? So, so it's really good. Yeah. Things start to make sense that way. Definitely. And, you know, rewinding a little bit, whenever I talked about clarity too, we can be clear with our words, but if, if our actions don't align with those, what we're asking them to do, like the, the example that you just said, if, if we say, Hey, you, we, uh, we want to be really good at dirt ball reads. And then the first one that gets thrown out on a dirt ball read that, you know, catcher makes a great pick and a great throw and a great tag and you're out. And then we get all over them, then, it, you know, that, that breeds more confusion than clarity. And then, so kids are going to be like, okay, now what? Right. And it's going to breed that confusion that, that you just mentioned. But I, I did want to hit on the competition aspect. I know that just athletes in general love to compete. And I think that you get into athletics because that's a, that's, you know, that, that's a part of who you are is you like to just compete and see where you measure up and, and how we can get better. But that's also part of the title of, of the river cats book, you talked about the different competition aspects of it. So can you give us some different ways to do that? And then maybe some practical drills or examples that we could steal from you with competition. Absolutely. So one of the things I've started doing and, and, uh, someone reached out to me on, on Twitter about this, uh, competition, competition sometimes makes, makes, uh, the act of, of playing baseball difficult because the, the pulse starts to accelerate and then your heart rate and then your palms get sweaty and you get, you get some nervous anxiety. And, and one of the, one of the ways that this manifests is, is through anticipation. And like, I, I was thinking as a hitter, you know, if, if, uh, if I knew if I was fifth up in the inning, I could start to see this inning play out and I could start to run scenarios and, guys got on base and then you start to go, okay, so I'm going to come up with runners on first and second, or maybe even bases loaded. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're adding context to that at bat. So one of the things that I've started to do working with hitters is, is do that exact thing where you take a group of six or eight and you say, Hey, uh, we're down, we're down three and we've got six outs to go. And, and what's awesome about it is they so don't want to disappoint their buddies. They, they, they don't want to be the one that, that, that makes the third out with runners at second and third and two outs. And, and uh, so, you know, what you do is create this little competition. But in the past, I would, always, I would always see competition in terms of one team against another team in practice. And that's true and that's great. But lately here – I've been creating competition with one team against the standard. And then I let their imagination drive sort of the, the energy and drive the, the, uh, you know, the, the competition aspect of it. And it's been, it's been so good. And, and the, the results and the authentic displays of emotion, like we did one this summer where, um, Oh, well, it just happened to be my nephew, Cole, Cole hit a, uh, uh, an imagine well he hit a home run but but it you know he he did it with like uh, they were tie game runner on, or they were down one with a runner on third and and Cole homered in this in this you know this small little competitive environment and and they went nuts they were jumping all around and, and I was like yep that's what I'm after that's what I'm interested in um 
you know, some other things that, that I'll do is, um, speaking to the competitive nature. I, you know, I, I believe the, the most accurate throwing team is the best defensive team. So what, what we'll do is we'll often do throwing accuracy drills on the clock, uh, at the young levels, the drill is just a matter of completing something, but at the higher levels, we'll put them on a clock and, and, um, maybe we'll go, uh, so if you've got all infield positions and, and I'm standing in the middle of the diamond, uh, maybe I'll say, hey, all double plays, and then I'll just start firing the ball at certain positions. So I'll fire it at the second baseman, and, 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 and maybe, maybe they're in double play depth, so it's a 4-6-3, and we'll put them on the clock and see what they, how fast they got that one. Or maybe they're infield in, and it's 4-2-3, and we'll put them on the clock, and and uh, they just have a fun. They have a ton of fun trying to beat the standard. So I guess that's probably where my my shift has has uh, occurred in practice settings. It's that uh, players on a team like to compete against the standard as part of a team, um, maybe even more so than splitting the team up and competing against themselves. So that that that's so that's something I've done. I just gave you two examples there of what I've done recently. No, I really like that. And uh, I think that, that those are all great, uh, great things to do. Really, really cool. You mentioned earlier about how important authentic relationships are. And I, I think that we as coaches, if you've coached long enough, you've, you've at least had this player one time, maybe every year, but the player that you just, you can't get through to them. Like it, it's, you've tried everything and your maybe your assistants have tried everything or your head coach has tried and it just they seem to be uncoachable what do what do we do with that player yeah um well it's funny i I was on a i was on a call with uh, coach rob cooper and and uh, he asked me he said what's the biggest myth in coaching and i said that the idea that players are uncoachable and and he said um well, we obviously elaborated, and I said, "Look, I, I, I'm just of the mindset where if I'm looking in the mirror first, if someone is uncoachable, I want to know what it is that 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 I'm doing that I can't get him to 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 execute to to be the best player that he can be." But um, we we know for sure, and and this has proven countless of times over over history, is that uncoachable players get a new environment and then all of a sudden they become coachable. And, and, you know, I, I think, uh, you have to at least look at yourself and say, Hey, look, if, 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 if I'm in it for player development, I have to be honest with myself. There are times when the environment that I have created is not conducive to this particular player. And, uh, if, if that situation pops up, I think an honest conversation takes place and you know, no one has to be blamed. It's not like you're the reason why this isn't working or I'm the reason why, but it, it, regardless, it's not working. And, and if it doesn't change, you, 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 we probably do need a new, uh, new, new place to exist, new scenery. And, and, uh, that, that's happened. That happens for every coach. I mean, it, it's, it's why transfers exist for the, for the health of, of the player. And, you know, so, as long as player and coach look in the mirror and say, am I doing everything in my power to make this experience productive? Uh, again, you know, coaches can't just place the blame on the player and the player can't place the blame on the coach. And, and if they sit down and if they think they are in fact doing everything possible, well then, yeah, we might need a, a change of scenery. Great, great answer for a really, really tough question. So uh, you nailed that one. And I want to end with a couple of quick hitters. And again, they don't have to be, I think Kevin Wilson set the all time record with like a, like a six word answer, which was really, really good, but that it doesn't have to be, you know, lightning style, just some quick hitters. But you, you mentioned earlier, you're the dad of a baseball player. I mean, obviously I would love if, if my son played baseball, I just, you know, I just want him to be passionate about something someday, but what is what is your best advice for those listening who are dads of maybe youth level high school baseball players? Uh, the dad, the dad hat will almost always trump the coach hat. As many self talks as you give yourself, you will always be a dad first and foremost. Which means uh, you have to decide how it is you want to coach your son, and then you have to be consistent across the board. 
if if you're a pat on the back guy to your son and uh, that's just how you believe he should be raised, then you have to be that way with his teammates. And if you're hard on your son and you drive him and that's what you believe, then that's how you have to treat his teammates. So uh, that would be my advice to all those dad coaches is as much as you want, that dad hat is going to rear its head. And when it does, you know, I would, I would, and I talk about this in the book, I would, I would always play a game when I would go to fields, can you find his son? And I would try to see which son belongs to which coach just by the way they interacted. And, and I always made it a priority to, to try not to be that guy, but it's, it's hard. It's hard. Definitely. What is a disheartening trend that you see in baseball today that you'd like to see changed? High school coaches are losing respect, and uh, it's it's not the fault of the travel coach. Uh, the travel coaches are great. I was one. Uh, travel coaches are knowledgeable. They often have professional experience. They often see these kids in the summer, but the high school coach sees these kids compete in their community many times with more at stake, uh, state championships and, uh, and, uh, division championships and, and, you know, people grow up knowing each other. So rivalries run deep, uh, in communities and the high school coach has got to be given opportunities to comment on a player and his capabilities in, in the environment that he sees. I, I think far too often, they get labeled as, as something under a travel coach. And I think that's disheartening. I love that answer. We're going to end with this one because I think that this is, this is one that you sent over, which I, I really like that I may steal from you for the rest of these episodes, but what's the greatest opportunity for athletic development today? Well, there's no doubt that the data that we're presented with affords these athletes um, a, a chance to get better faster than, than at any time in our existence. But, um, you know, I, there, it is a double-edged sword. I, I do think, I believe that, that data and imagination are uh, opposite sides of the same coin. I, I think we need to be really careful when data trumps imagination. So, uh, the, the, the greatest opportunity we have for development uh, from a technological standpoint, from working with coaches, are these uh, instruments of data. But from a uh, emotional and uh, heck, almost even spiritual standpoint, is this imagination that uh, that I talk about. And we got to be careful because uh, the, when when players tie into numbers, they often they often lose some of their imagination. So. That, that's, that's the, the, it's, it's a great, great time. Data is a, is a wonderful thing to, to drive learning and to, to accelerate learning. But if you, if you lose your imagination, I'm not, I'm not sure it wasn't for the worse. Interesting. I like that. So what we do at the end of the show is I'm just going to basically mute myself. I will ask, or I will link the, your Twitter page on uh, the, sh- uh, the show notes down below. Is there another contact that you would like to have, or if any of the listeners want to get in contact with you, is that the best way? Yeah, that's the best way. Yeah, that's okay, perfect. Well, I'm just going to open up the mic for you and just give you free reign, uh, you know, to end our show today. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on, Kyle. I really do appreciate the content that you put out consistently. And and I know that at the intro of the show, I put that you're one of my favorite Twitter followers because you do make me think differently about things. And uh, I'm, I'm going to let you end it. So if, if you don't mind, I'm going to mute myself. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Uh you know, being, being a coach and, uh, and being a part of a team is, is so addictive. I mean, winning and, and planning, it, it's, it's so, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's what I miss so much about coaching, but I would just say that uh, we owe it to our athletes to be an ambassador to the game. And uh, one of the best ways that you can be an ambassador to the game is by, is by complimenting players on the other team. I mean, I can't even think, um, what would be more rewarding for an athlete to be approached by someone on the other team uh, in a position of authority and that guy say, Hey, you were great today. You know, you were great. You were, 
you know, the, the way you swung the bat, the way you defended, the way you hustled on and off the field, because I think that goes so far. And, you know, uh, your, your own coach could say the same thing 15 times, but when the opposing coach says it one time, sometimes it'll, it'll last a lifetime. So, uh, that's, that's what I would like to leave. Just be an ambassador to the sport and, um, and, and look out for, for people beyond your team to help grow this team. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.